This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where now, through August 15th, you're going to find some excellent deals on some... Everything at Zupan's is delicious. There's not anything they sell there that's below par. So that being said, you now can save quite a bit on Columbia River steelhead fillets. And what's appealing to me here, Court, is their pork chops. Their Carlton Farms bone-in pork chops are now practically half off. You save $4 a pound. So uh, those are delicious. And of course, everybody knows who's been there. You don't know until you know. What is that Y-K-I-N-I-K-N-N-W um, that I see all the time now. You know if you know. You know if you know, yeah. Right. So um, their, uh, their meat department is second to none. So everything's beautiful. Lots of great choices there. And their service is great, too. I like to have things ice packed. They, they pack everything up for me. But um, well, i got some other things, too. Local organic leaf lettuce. Two heads for five bucks, which is fantastic these days. And uh, nectarines. You're going to save $2 a pound on nectarines. Yeah, I got to do a shout out here. Uh, speaking of local is their Ruby Jewel ice cream sandwiches are on sale right now. Two for seven bucks, which is a great deal on those and a delicious uh, treat on a hot summer day. Better yet, you can actually get into some background there and check out, just search uh, right at the fork, Ruby Jewel, and you're going to get an interview uh, there about how it started and where, where it's gone. That was a few years ago, actually. That's exactly right. Zupan's Market should be kind of your destination, whether you've got just a, a summer meal you need to put together. Maybe it's an event or you're just looking for some ideas for a get together that you're doing. Zupan's Markets is the place to go. Any one of three locations, we've got Lake Oswego, McAdam, West Burnside. And of course, what we have open right now is Zupan's.com. All right, here it is, time once again. It's Portland's Food Scene Podcast, right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures, and I'm co-host, Court Johnson. Hello, Court, in this August. By the way, do you realize we're exactly, I have this little tidbit thing, and it told me we are exactly halfway through summer 2023 right oh, now. Oh, this is the official halfway mark. Somewhere along there, it was. there's 45 days left until fall, so I'm going to assume 90 days per season or 92 days per season so wow so there we go we're here we this, are this week we're halfway through summer so i hope you've had a good summer how's your summer been it's been good it's been good you know i'm uh, acclimating to what summer is like in san francisco it's a lot different than summer in portland and the pacific northwest so it's good what's though. it like is it how is is it windy um what is it it's cooler in the morning it feels it's kind of like it's like a typical fall day where you have to wear a jacket to work and then when you're leaving work it's too hot for the jacket and so you just have to carry your jacket out i remember going to a baseball game around now where it was really cool when we left the hotel and then i was boiling at the yeah. game so and that's then, why we're we're layers there yeah by the end of the game you needed the layers back in that's everything's telling me that i'm going to a concert this weekend and everybody is like wear layers because even though it's going to be hot during the day by the time the sun goes down in golden gate park it's going to be freezing 
All right. Well, I may need a, an oxygen mask this weekend because I am flying to the big island, Hawaii. My first trip ever to Hawaii, actually. And uh, I'm not going to Maui. And oh my God, those poor people, and I feel for them in yeah. Maui. It's just, it's devastating. Yeah, it's devastating. And I just called Alaska Airlines. It looks like we are flying into Kona tomorrow. So that should be good. And having the good fortune of uh, hanging out for four days with Vitaly and Kimberly Paley. We're planning our Portland Food Adventures trip for next year. We're actually planning slash revising. So we're going to spend a little time figuring out how to do it so it's not so expensive. And I hope. And uh, and anybody who would like or is interested in going to visit the Paleys and finding out what they've discovered since they started living there a year ago, and enjoying that next year, um, certainly touch base with me at uh, my Portland Food Adventures address, Chris at PortlandFoodAdventures.com. Just get no, I'm not going to twist anybody's arm, but get on a list for I'm interested in going to do that. And um, we'll get in touch with you when we're ready. We actually have it on our website, but we're going to figure out how to do it so it's not so expensive, as I just said. So it'll be probably half the cost, but maybe we won't include hotels and people can make their own accommodations. Mm. So um, we're, we're looking at that. Uh, we just have to figure out a different way to do it. Also, there's a trip on there, as long as I'm talking about it, to Basque Country, Spain next year with the folks from Urdaneta. This will be our fourth such trip, and it's been very uh, positively received in the past. It's a great trip. We are over halfway sold out right now, and so um, we would encourage you to get in on that. At, I don't know if we're going to be doing that one again. We may be doing another trip to somewhere else in Spain, but Basque Country, as everybody knows is a hotbed of wonderful food, and so this trip is fantastic. Check it out at portlandfoodadventures.com. Under, there's two ways to find it on the Trips tab. See what that's all about, and uh, it's great for couples. We already have four couples coming with us, and as I said, we're already halfway sold out for next year. I'm sure we will because we've sold out every single one we've done up till now. So that's that. We have to do a trip down to San Francisco, uh, Court. I know you just kind of met my you didn't kind of you actually did what is with the word kind of you you met my cousin jim who's got a restaurant there coal valley tavern mm-hmm. also bacon bacon and he's got a bacon bacon in the airport he's all over the place he's doing very well in the food world down there and so maybe someday we'll do a trip to san francisco and you can horse ho- horsed it horsed by your own petard hoist you can host it um and uh, you can be the guy. Yeah. Yeah, no. Well, I'll be w- one of the guys. I mean, uh, it's been, you know, a new culinary food journey for me, discovering some new places. And Coal Valley's been one of those. Your cousin Jim took me out to a great taco place in Oakland um, just last week, which was great. So, All right. So you're discovering. Dis- di- what is with me today? Discovering the spots. You're discovering them. <laughs> this might be the first conversation you had with somebody today. Is it it isn't. It isn't. Okay, well, then you have no, no excuse. No, it's not. And that doesn't include my dog, who, who I've had two incidents with this week. A little scary. So I just ordered the trackable collar. So um, mm. that's, that's fun to do. Anyway, so um, I was uh, noting that our guest last week, which 
It was a great interview with Adam Sawyer. Uh, shared the podcast with his following and then said, I think it was at the 14-minute mark, he said, but the interview actually starts at the 14-minute mark. So I'm curious as to who actually listens to these intros and doesn't, yes. So, um, but, you know, when our guests are saying, don't bother listening to Chris and Court, go right to me. Um, He's just doing them a favor. I mean, I mean, we think that I would say he's doing them a disfavor. Yes. But, uh, uh, you know, I think I think he's just trying to let them know when he starts talking in case somebody tunes in and is like, wait a minute. Who am I listening to? Yeah, no, I understand that. But and the other thing is, you know, we don't provide the timelines that most people do on podcasts these days where they really help people avoid commercials and tell them exactly where they want to go. I don't under I don't I guess that's a nice service to do for people. On the other hand, uh, you know, you want people to try to listen to the whole thing and not say, "Hey, if you want to cheat, here's how you go." Right. So, uh, yeah, pe- anyway, people know that anyway. All right, Court, so let's get into this interview with, with Kurt Huffman of Chef Stable, capital S, as we talk about in the podcast. And, you know, Kurt's been on the podcast quite a bit. He is a main cog in the Portland food world. And, um, you know, the Chef's Table, if you go to their website, I don't know if it's org or .com, you'll find it. Chef's Table Portland, you'll see that they um, are partners and do are responsible for the back end and other things that have to do with lots of Portland restaurants like Ox and Lardo and St. Jack. And I'm not going to list the whole. You can go look at the whole list. But uh, they're doing some new things with the beer garden. And um, they've got a few new ventures going on. But the, more importantly... I think Kurt gives us a good perspective on what's going on in the restaurant world uh, all over the world right now, domestically, and also in Portland, and what what we might expect as things go forward, Um, you know, because he knows what's viable now, and he talks a little bit about uh, what restaurants might be viable. So I asked him what he would tell a prospective restaurateur, what he would tell a prospective restaurant employee, and what he would tell a uh, patron of a restaurant, what they might expect that might be differently since the pandemic. So we talk about that and a little bit of Kurt's background, longer-term background, and how he views his business and so forth. And it's always good to check in with Kurt Huffman. Really nice guy, always has been um, has been a stand-up guy ever since I met him, and my first I had criticism, and he he makes mention of it, of how he handled reviews with Foster Burger. I will say I did not give him a bad review. I wrote him directly about what he did with those reviews and how he handled those, and he got back to me, and we became friends, and a lot has transpired since. Um, with regard to this podcast and restaurants and events and things we've done with Kurt. And I've gotten to know him as a friend. We've, uh, we've actually dined together a few times and hope to do that soon. If you listen to the end of the podcast, we talk about how that's going to happen. He'll also talk about some of his favorite places in Portland at the end, as we usually do with guests. So hit it with Kurt Huffman of Chef's Table right now. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods 
fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers and local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland. West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years, Ringside has been providing the best steaks and has been the home of the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. And by Portland Food Adventures. It's your opportunity to travel to the world's most celebrated food destinations with Right at the Fork host, Chris Angeles, and some of his favorite chef friends. Check out PortlandFoodAdventures.com for exciting and delicious itineraries to Spain, Italy, and elsewhere. Stay in great hotels, eat incredible food, and leave the planning to Portland Food Adventures. Hi, Kurt. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. You're in your blazer's garb there. Yep. Very, very nice. Yeah. Excited um, for how things turn out. Anxious. So, as a blazer fan, it's a. You mean with yeah, the blazers? It's, a, uh, it's an anxious moment. So. I guess so. Well, I'm a. I've kind of given up on basketball. I was a Knicks fan oh, way back, a Blazers fan for a couple of years, and now I'm just left with the Mets, and that's been a disaster. This, this is year. a bad so, season to um, be a Mets fan. Yeah, even if you're not a baseball fan, you know how bad yeah. it's been. So, um, <laughs> so, and then as soon as we're done with this, the Mets play the uh, the Cubs. So, um, uh, I still I'm a glutton for punishment. I view it as a pastime. Yeah. So I don't get that involved where they I like them to win, but I'm just a Met fan. I'm used to them not winning. I just enjoy the broadcast. Yeah. They're good. Is that the way you feel about? How do you feel about the Blazers? Yeah, pretty. Oh, and by the way, out of context, you're wearing your Blazers T-shirt. That's why yeah. I asked this question. Yeah, I, um, I well, lifelong Blazer fan. I mean, my first sporting memory is when the Blazers won the championship. I remember, my dad brought the TV outside at our house, and we were watching it little black and white TV outside. And, uh, was it a Sony, the little Sony? I had, no, it was like an 11 inch black and white. And, um, yeah, no, mine was like nine. And it was, uh, so very, very exciting. I remember jumping around on the sidewalk when Walton Lucas and everybody won. So that was kind of that formative thing, you know, like your first, you know, my first movie experience was seeing star Wars. And I just was like, you know, as a seven year old, just mind blown. And then the Blazers. So I've just always been a huge fan and can't really shake it. Um, and, uh, but, you know. You're making me feel old that Star Wars was your earliest yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, I remember my parents uh, taking me there. And I couldn't really understand the idea behind it. But we had read all about it. My It was in Time Magazine. It was a whole thing. And they had pictures of C-3PO mm-hmm. and R2-D2. And uh, we were talking about it beforehand. And we went there. And I just never, I don't think it'd seen a special effect before, right? So at the beginning, you have that one. No one you know, has. Princess Leia's ship was like zooming along. And you're like, oh, wow, that's a big ship. And then all of a sudden, the huge Imperial cruiser comes by. And like, right. uh, and I just remember going, what is happening? <laughs> this is awesome. So, uh, yeah, so Blazer fan forever. That's, and I, um, that's funny. D- just to present some contrast. Yeah. 
My earliest uh, space memories are like the Lost in Space TV yeah. series, Dan- Danger Will Robinson. Go back and find those now and watch them and see how incredibly stupid yeah. they are. <laughs> and that's what we were watching in prime time. Well, it's hard so, to watch Star Wars but it, and not just kind of be like, oh my God, Luke, you are insufferable. Now, <laughs> right, but at least Star Wars was cool. Yeah, the ghoul, uh, Lost in Space that we grew up in was really stupid. Yeah. So if that were the case, <laughs> if it all permeated, I'm just really stupid and you're very cool. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Jeez, well, I don't know if I, if I agree with that little sequence there, but yeah, it's so long story short. Blazers <laughs> have always been a passion. Um, even when I lived abroad, I was obsessed. And we've just come so close, you know, since 76. There's been these eras where we were almost there but always ran into the wrong teams and so you know but it's a good i was i was a fan in the lamarcus aldridge brandon roy yeah. days yeah. and uh, they were close it was yeah. fun to watch no, I, but the I very first time i owned season tickets yeah. is when i moved back to portland in 08 after business school i had one season ticket <laughs> and so yeah one, one there was so then I can't, now I can't complain to you that you never invited me. I don't have any, I don't have that. It is a little bit the odd guy, you know, it's an odd thing to just have one ticket, but it was an unbelievable seat for the same price as all the other ones. And I was like, Hey, what the hell? You know, we were opening, Andy and I were opening Ping. And so, you know, I, and there was that, uh, the max that went from old town Chinatown straight over. So I'd eat dinner, you know, I'd be working at Ping until game time, take the max. It's like five minutes to get to the, uh, the Rose garden back in the day. And, um, and that's when the next year we drafted Odin and I thought, oh man, this is it. This is our championship run here. And then Roy injured, Odin injured, and you're, I guess Odin injured first, then Roy, and you're just like, oh. so. Well, at least Brandon Roy produced something over oh, the years. Yeah. Roy was a stud and I actually went to his last yeah. big game where we beat Dallas, the year Dallas won. And Roy had just this unbelievable mm-hmm. game on essentially one knee and, uh, me and my friend Leather, we both went, and we were just like, to this day, just one of the most unbelievable performances ever. Um, and we got gifted tickets, so we were like in the fifth row. <laughs> it was awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so there you go. Lifelong. Hopefully, I like Scoot Henderson. I like the guys they brought in. We don't seem to do anything well except for draft. We draft pretty well, so we'll see. Maybe you know, maybe there's something, but. We're not that When desirable. is the draft? Has it already has, it happened? Yeah, has it taken yeah, that? We were lucky and got it already the happened. Number three pick and pick. Oh right, right, right. I remember yeah. that number three in so, the lottery. But I guess to take um, full circle, you know, uh, you know, similar, you know, Portland as a sports destination is kind of what I feel like Portland is as a uh, as a dining destination right now. You know, it's not necessarily um, you know the shining star. You know, Portland can't like recruit top talent and. I feel like the risk in Portland right now is continuing to to bring in talent. You know that, that's a risk of any big, of any food city. You know if you can't if you don't mm-hmm. have quality chefs and sous and everything, you just can't produce great food. So um, I, I think that's the biggest relief coming out of the pandemic is that there's still a, a talent pool there that I was terrified was going to go away. You know when Jose Chesa left and. You know, Gorham left and Andy Ricker left and um, Vitali left. And I was really. Those four, yeah. that's that. It's, it doesn't take a, you, you, it doesn't take a great memory. It's just doesn't reel those four yeah. off right yeah, off I was the really, bat when you think of what's really changed. I was really nervous. And, um, and I think it's okay. You know, I think that Portland, 
Um, I mean, we got pretty lucky having a guy like Gregory um, uh, deciding to open his restaurant here because he really could have opened it anywhere he wanted in the United States. He could have opened Khan anywhere and it would have won, you know, as many awards. So we're lucky that he stayed here. I wish he had opened downtown instead well, of southeast. But wait a minute. Can I just comment on yeah. that for a second? My opinion yeah. on that? I think he needed to to get where he is now. I think he needed the accolades from Portland. So he needed he needed Portland Monthly. He needed Karen Brooks and those places to anoint him Restaurant of the Year to get Esquire here to then do that and to get – I don't know if he would have gotten as far. I don't know. It's arguable, right? But I think he needed the local – to build it locally and get – and because Portland does still get some attention um, to do that. I don't think if he'd gone to Denver, it would have – been exactly the same it may have been who knows you know better than i yeah. that's just my opinion i think that people in portland are also a little bit um unaware of kind of people's reputation outside of portland um oh, and for sure. i think gregory came into this with um kind of a brand that was much stronger nationally than anybody locally you know most people locally understood so um you know i yeah, I mean, I thought he was going to win uh, Best Restaurant of the Year before they opened and um, because it just felt like everything was perfect, you know. Super, super well-known guy, been on multiple national TV shows. You know, if he, if he didn't have that momentum, he wouldn't have been filming, you know, guest appearances on shows before they even won the beard. I mean, the, the momentum started before the beard. The beard was just kind of like crowned oh, yeah. as he was taking off. And um, so... But I, I, and I the commercials on top of it, the yeah. national commercials. Yeah, it was too. a Dove or he had some soap commercial, <laughs> and um, no, he's got he's got the 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 dishwashing, yeah, uh, dishwashing whatever. Soap. The, <laughs> but I, I just think he's a yeah. world class human being and uh, a guy who's so positive and and um, such a contributor, you know, to the Portland scene and such a hard worker. So I think we're just we're just super lucky to have him here. Um, and uh, but Portland's lucky in a lot of ways, you know, the fact that, um, you know, Tai Chi from uh, a furry ramen decided to start his whole thing here is unbelievable. And, um, you know, now with Tanaka and, you know, that's just lucky. It's like why. And he's I think he's a superstar. So and we've gotten lucky on multiple counts despite losing like some generational talent. So, uh, yeah, so I feel pretty hopeful um, about the Portland food scene. Well, thanks for doing my job for me and helping us segue right from the Blazers into the food scene. Uh, I appreciate it, but I'm glad to hear you say that. I actually have, in that vein, I have three questions yeah. for you that are like, it's one question and answering it three ways. So I can either ask one and then go into the second or just ask you all three and let you bing, bing, bing. I'll tell you what I'm going to ask, okay. and then you can decide. Okay. I would like to know what you would tell somebody now, what you would tell uh, an operator, 
on what it's going to take to be successful in Portland. So a new chef that comes to you at Chef's Table and wants to open a restaurant or you go to them, however that works, what it's going to take to be successful in 2023, perhaps versus what it would have taken in 2018. And then what you would tell um, the customer, how they need to act now and how they need to change their, their expectations a little bit for, because I know I've had to change my expectations for, you know, tipping and 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 the kind of servers that there might be out there now because a lot of people left the industry and then lastly what you would take a uh what what you would tell a cook front of the house person a prospective employee of a restaurant at chef's table group how to excel and be the best they could be, what they need to do that isn't being done right now. So those three questions, I can remind you along the way, but I thought right. that would be an interesting yeah. thing to hear from you. Right. Let's those, start, start with three. the first one so I kind of understand the context. So remind me of the, the first one in your words. What you would tell uh, an operator. Right. So one of your new, you know, one of your new prospective partners right. in the chef world, what it's going to take now to be a successful operator. Now, of course, that varies by the type of restaurant they're opening. But what is what has changed now that you didn't have to think about in 2018 that you have to think about now? Oh, well, I mean, the first thing now, for instance, we're we just shut down La Moule. And so we can use La Moule as like a template for or an example of a, a kind of restaurant, I think that uh, struggles, like from a from a business model perspective now, whereas, you know, we did, you know, well five years ago. Um, and mm-hmm. which was 2018. Yeah, so, That's one. um, and a woman, uh, bought the, uh, um, uh, the restaurant from us. And I'm glad I'm catching myself because, uh, somebody's writing about it uh, this week. So I, I won't say anything more, but let me just, I'll tell you what I told. Oh, God forbid we step on anybody's toes here and get an, get get the lead, get the lead story. It's her, uh, it's her, uh, it's her deal, right? Where we sold it to her. So I don't, you know, it's, it's hers to talk about. So, but the, but what I told her was, um, don't do a full, you know, a, a full make everything from, from scratch sauces complicated menu you know stay simple stay focused and try to and if you want to hope to make any money really focus as a bar um bars are doing very very well in portland Uh, all of our bars are doing well um and the restaurants that are doing well tend to have an incredibly simplified menu where we're trying to focus on doing a few things really well um and so with la moule you know, we were doing, we were making all the sauces. We were, you know, cleaning all the mussels. It's like, it, it was a very labor intensive restaurant that required a lot of guys on the, in the kitchen, you know, prepping, uh, cooking, cleaning. And at the end of the day, we, you know, we couldn't do enough income to justify that much labor. Um, and labor costs, I mean, over the last five years have gone up substantially. But so our costs. So that's that's a change from yeah. 2018. Labor costs have gone but up you substantially. The, Cost of goods sold exploded. You know they've kind of stabilized during the pandemic. It was insane. We've done substantial price raises, but I genuinely believe that 
uh, the price raises that sit-down restaurants have done, and you can insert any of them, you know, is is hurting uh, is hurting uh, sit-down dining uh, business. And our revenues are pretty consistent, but we've raised our prices just to stay even, right? We've raised our prices almost 30%. Um, so that means that the number of diners, we, you know, we're doing the same income, but on fewer people, right? So you, we just don't have the covers that we used to. Um, and, uh, and that's indicative, I think, of just the inflation that's gone on. And there's a sticker shock uh, that I think people are seeing. So um, I think right, well, I know right now, if I look at all the places that we have, the places that are more bar focused, a little bit more casual that do, you know, a few things well, but um, that are able to have a very, very tight kitchen team, uh, very light prep load. Those are the ones that, uh, you know, can make money. And, um, and the ones that are still doing it the right way, right, the way I think the traditional restaurants would do, um, are, you know, are, they're doing okay, but it's not like it was in 18. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the, the net is very, very low. Um, and that's just a, a function, I think, of where the industry is right now and people's willingness, you know, people are still willing to pay, but fewer people are willing to pay. So, and where where have those people gone? Have they have they gone to more fast casual restaurants? Are they doing other food carts? Or are they just have they just decided I'm going to eat at home? Are they eating at home? I don't know. Do you know, I don't know. I mean, if I had that data, I'd, you know, I, I think that um, you know we can compare, for instance, like a Loyal Legion and a La Moule. Loyal's uh, business has stayed remarkably uh, stable. You know, we've done very few price increases because we want to make sure that we were kind of aligned with, you know, our customer base, you know, we want it to be affordable. Uh, our margins as a result of hit have been hit, but we've stayed busy. Um, and, you know, over time we're going to have to increase our prices, but, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure where people are going, but I do know if I look at all of our, you know, sit down table restaurants, uh, the cover counts have gone down. Um, even if our revenues have stayed stable, um, the fast casual restaurants, uh, are doing, um, pretty well, you know, fast casual, a lot of them, they have such, we have really aggressive tip out structures. So in a place like XLB, for instance, we're, you know, the front of the house and the back of the house almost make the same in terms of tip out. So we're able to have a much more consistent, um, you know, much less turnover in the kitchen. And that's really produced good results. Um, and we've been able to be efficient, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, right now, if somebody was starting out new, I'd say, unless you're Gregor Gorday, um, or somebody who's just riding a massive amount of PR and goodwill, I would stay as far away from sit down, fine dining as you can. Um, because it's, it's brutal. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it, it's a really, really hard game. And what's doing well, I think is, you know, the guy's, uh, Toby and the guys from Gato Gato opened that neat bar, 21st and Clinton, uh, right across from where the original St. Jack was, where Jacqueline's is now. It's like the, yeah. oh, shoot, the dark lights. Oh, darn it. I can't remember it. I just, but that's awesome. I drove by there the other day. What, the Houston yeah, Blacklight? Houston Blacklight. Thank you. And yeah, so Houston. exactly what I'm talking about. Bar focused, right? Fun environment, simple menu. I think they, I think they killed it there. And, um, and I, and I think that's the intent of the person, uh, taking over Lemoule. Um, and it's, it's exactly what I would do 
um, you know, we're contemplating a new project. Uh, and that's exactly what we would do too. It's really try to focus on just doing a few things really, really well, and then making it, uh, you know, fun, affordable and, and drink focused. So that's what I would tell somebody, you know, Okay, that's interesting. And I, you know, in Portland, I always thought a restaurant's a bar, a bar is a restaurant. Right. That was the way I've always looked at it. I'm not a big drinker, so I'm not looking for a place once in a while. I mean, I always thought of La Moule right. when you had Nathan yeah. there. I used to go when Nathan was there, and that to me was like the consummate bar to take someone. Yeah. So, you know, and we do, I, I don't know if the law still exists, right? A bar must serve yeah, food in the state. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. So I think. Uh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, and I. So we're going to see more bars, but I think people who are new to the area must know that if you're calling it a bar, you're still going to get good food, and you're going to get good food because you can't operate in Portland and not serve great food. You can't well, just you call can it in, dial bar, it in. You know, like <laughs> um, over by where we're building out um, the uh, the bakery for the Dos Hermanos Brothers. At 10th and Stark, there's mm -hmm. the Slammer. And I don't know how they've survived on their liquor license with that taco bar they have. But it's like, you know, it's basically just – and I don't – you know, I think that is a, one, well, of, one of Portland's gems. But I, I wouldn't call it a culinary destination. And um, But they they have managed to, to maintain that kind of, you know, inexpensive drink jam that I think is a big part of Portland's heritage, uh, which I think is funny. But, you know, if you're going to do something where – something new that's food focused then you have to get creative but you know the other thing i think we're doing like with heavenly creatures you know tried to open up a place that was a little bit unexpected uh really you know aaron barnett there with joel gunderson put together a really neat kind of seafood friendly menu um that was i think great well received it's only two people in that kitchen we just opened a place kind of a, a speakeasy place called cash cash with john dennison who was at mm -hmm. Um, St. Jack for a long time. That's a two guy place, and I ate there last. And it's getting a lot of buzz. Oh god, I ate there I'm last seeing night. more Just buzz for unbelievable that. To, unbelievable. John is so talented. Um, and the lobster roll. I know that you're a lobster roll guy. His lobster roll is is truly next level. Um, and um, so those the, those are other ways is, is being super creative in how you come up with um, you know putting fine food in unexpected settings where your overhead is very, very low. I mean, to build cash cash, we probably had to put in like 25 grand and we just kind of put it into a funny little area and, uh, and it's doing really well. And it's a, you know, it's an outlet for John to be creative and he's doing really cool stuff. And, you know, so I think those are, but those are, those are almost like kind of like, you know, freeform jazz instead of like kind of a, a rock quartet or something. It's just kind of like we're feeling it out. Well, but but that's kind of where you yeah. are now. I mean, you're not willing to – no one really wants to invest uh, a lot into something that may not work because it's a different market yeah. now than it used to yeah, be. Yeah, it is different, and I think we're going to find out where it goes. I think there's certain groups that are riding high on stuff, and they are in a good place be, you know, because they um, uh, there's this kind of window – whenever you're just kind of like just win a beard or something where you, you can attack um, and do that. And, um, and, you know, I think that those people, I would probably be more bullish if I was them to open new places. And I think they are. So I think that's smart, but you know, for the normal restaurant people, it's just, it's a time to be very cautious um, and kind of, and feel out great opportunities. 
Um, so that's what I would tell somebody that came to me is just focus, figure out how to be a great, great bar with a really cool hook on the food, um, where you can get great service, really have people feel connected. And I don't know if that's going to be the jam that'll work in five years, but for now I'm seeing it all over the place and it's, it's doing well. And, um, uh, and I, you know, I, I like that model. It's a safer one. Good. Well, that, uh, I, I think that, um, you know, there was a time when I used to say it and others said it, we're, we're crowded with, oh, there was a, you know, remember the days yeah. when there were five new openings yeah. a week or a month or whatever that either would cover. And I remember a lot of chefs talking about, we just, it's great, but we don't need more restaurants in this city. And, um, I think that's kind of, you know, the equalizer was the pandemic to kind of thin it out a little bit and start all over, start fresh. Yeah. With but what's great concepts, is that there's so, so many, you know, Portland will, a key part of the Portland food scene is just this kind of um, massive uh, well of risk takers, you know. And I haven't seen that, you know, I haven't seen a, a shortage of people willing to go out there and do cool stuff. And so I think that's, that's really promising. I mean, you know, guys like the guys at, at uh, street disco, right. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I love what they've done. Um, I love that neighborhood. I'm so glad that uh, up where we had foster burger, where you and I met, um, you know, I'm so mm-hmm. glad that, uh, that they're up there reinvesting. I love that whole neighborhood up there. Um, so there's a lot of neat stuff still happening in Portland. Um, but um, uh yeah, I think it's you, you need those young risk takers to kind of keep the, the scene dynamic. So, well, that's always been, yeah, that's been what's been cool is a lot of people coming from San Francisco who couldn't afford it or and came up here to, to give it a whirl. So, I don't know if you're in a position to tell potential employees what they need to do. That, I, I guess, is maybe a well, strange question, yeah. but what, I mean, what, what is it? How, how do you go about hiring people in this market? Well, I mean, I think that the, uh, you know, the low hanging fruit, if somebody were to come up to me and say, how do I get ahead? Right. <laughs> and that's a very right. specific question. That's... So how to get ahead would be that, well, you know, we've just gone through all these years of, um, you know, reestablishing a certain equilibrium, you know, with, uh, employees and expectations and this and that. And, you know, if right now you're a young, motivated person that wants to get promoted and get ahead, you know, I would just say, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, communicate that enthusiasm and work hard and take on extra stuff. I mean, it's exactly what we were taught back in the day, if if you want to do that, right? Because we're in a point now where we can't suggest that, but the low-hanging fruit right now is um, if you really want to get ahead, now is an awesome opportunity because you can jump in and if you have that enthusiasm and you have that passion for it and you put in uh the extra effort uh i think employers right now are um you know are are would be thrilled to see that um because it's been you know it's been a little bit taboo uh over the last three four years you know kind of uh like working extra working overtime you know all those questions were uh, kind of alienated the older school um, chefs that are still in the kitchens, you know. And so, you know, if you wanna, 
if you want to get ahead right now, well, that that's easy. Um, now is a great time to do it because, um, you know, there's been a real pullback and kind of, well, you know, I'm getting paid for this, so I only do that. And I respect that. Um, but if you want to show employers that you're passionate about the industry, you know, there's not a lot of people doing that right now compared to 10 years ago. So it's a, it's a wide open opportunity um, to impress your employer right now. Um, and so that, you know, that's what, what I would suggest. Um, and, uh, is there immediate, is the opportunity there for immediate gratification for, you know, for working a little longer of, you know, on uh, evenings, longer days, is there compensation for that now that there may not have been before? Or, yeah, I think uh, so. are you t- talking more of the marathon, the long-term the long-term view well, if you go from, to the manager uh, and say, hey, I'm always willing to pick up extra shifts, I'm, I'm willing and to get paid for them, right? I'm not saying work for free. I'm saying go to your managers and say, hey, it's like, I want to get ahead. You know, having audibilizing that to your, is, is something we almost never hear right now. You know, somebody just coming to you and saying, I, this is what I want to do. I want to get ahead. I want to have, you know, it's like, I want this to be my career. And I, I'm willing to, you have a call out, I'm willing to come in and work. Those are just things we don't hear anymore. And um, here, we still hear you them. probably have to just accept, receive it by text right. because people at a certain age, they're not used to, this is an actual issue. They're not used to looking someone in the eye and saying what they want to say, especially in Portland. Yeah. Everything's so passive yeah. here. But, you know, if you can, you, if you you gotta, can recognize that and know kind of, how to game the system, right? And it's like, you know, there's a real opportunity. And, um, but, you know, outside of that, I think, you know, we're still dealing with the same, um, with the same things. I mean, it's the biggest change I think is that, uh, you know, we, in the absence of any culinary schools, right. We don't, um, there's a different kind of candidate that comes in for kitchens. Um, that in a sense is a little bit easier to manage, um, because they don't, you know, they haven't spent a hundred thousand dollars on school and thinking that they're going to become like the, the next big chef. So I have way fewer young people coming to me saying, you know, they want to do this and they're going to start a lifestyle brand built around their concepts. <laughs> you know, things were five, 10 years ago, right. there was just, you know, these egos coming out of schools were so unbelievable. But also, weren't they weren't they more heavily invested to get out of after paying a hundred thousand dollars to go to culinary school? They were in. It's not like some. Oh, let me test this for one or two years, and then I'll go into IT. If that doesn't. Yeah, work. I think that they were. I mean, I think the expectations with those schools were that was kind of the tragedy of them. The kids came out of the school thinking, you know, that they were going to do really interesting stuff, and they'd show up at Pock Pock or Paley's Place or whatever, and just be said, "Look." just, you know, peel the carrots and, you know, and do exactly what I tell you to do. And, and that's how great restaurants work. You know, it's like, once you figure out your recipe, you figure out what you are, um, you know, you can contribute during, you know, menu meetings and stuff like that, but don't, there's no free form. There's no, you know, there's no jazz innovation, you know, as you're cooking. And I think that was, that was a hard lesson for a long time with culinary grads. Now at the same time that people you have, right now don't perhaps the same like base level skills that kids did coming out. Um, and so, so that's the trade off, but I, 
you know, that, that is one big change, but it is, it is reassuring to see that we, we are able now to keep our kitchen staffed, whereas even a year ago we couldn't. Um, but I think I'm, I'm segueing away from your second, what was the second question that you had? No, that was it. What you would tell, uh, you know, employees. Chris, we are pausing just a moment to talk about one of our favorite places to eat in Portland, an institution, as it were, Ringside Steakhouse. 79, over 79 years. I remember we were just saying 75 years, so time's flying, and uh, and we're coming up on an 80-year institution in Portland, uh, Ringside Steakhouse, where now, something they didn't have for most of those 80 years was, an, was outdoor dining, and their patio is awesome. And um, it's really nice spot to eat. They have they have some heaters out there if you need them. It's really pretty. So whether you're eating, you know, when you eat at ringside, you can either eat in the beautiful dining room, the bar. Now you can make reservations to eat in the bar or outside. Lots of choices there. In addition to lots of choices for different cuts of steak, right, Court? Yeah, I was just telling you this off air. Chris, I went just recently with my wife, Randy. Uh, you had been telling me, you got to get the Wagyu, you got to get the Wagyu. I, I finally did um, because there's so many great items to choose from and I just hadn't got to it yet. I went with the olive-fed Wagyu and it, easily the best steak I have ever had in my life. I, like, yeah. I was dumbfounded by it. It's a treat. It's not something you're going to get every time you go in there because it's a little expensive. Sure. But I've seen it for way more elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's something if you have, you know, a couple of times you get to say, just like you did, that it's the best steak you've ever had. And they yeah. have it. They have different options, too. So olive, olive fed is just one of them. The food, the food is delicious. And the service is absolutely bar none. The best in town. We had Colin serving us and just the best service the entire night. Best food. If it's a special occasion, if it's not a special occasion, Ringside Steakhouse is the place to go. Yeah, it will be just going there. It will turn into a special occasion. There it is. So, uh, and they also have food to go now, and they even on their website they've got a, a scrolling banner. Ringside steaks are on sale, so that's a good opportunity as well. So they are on West Burnside. They're open. Let's give the hours here: four thirty to nine Monday through Thursday, four to nine thirty Friday and Saturday, and four to nine on Sunday. And, of course, set up those reservations. You can do that through the website, ringsidesteakhouse.com, or on the Open Table app. The third one coming up, if you want to go yeah. right into that, is what would you tell the dining public? Uh, and, they, you know, you don't necessarily need to tell them. They can recognize differences. But what do you think, as far as their expectations go, compared to the past, um, how things have changed uh, because of the pandemic or because of other issues, uh, wages and so forth that have come to the fore yeah. over the past few years. Um, I think most dining uh, public aren't aware of the um, breadth of the cost increases that we've had to, um, you know, take on, um, you know, the state, at least here in Oregon, the state has brought in, uh, has introduced so many um, programs like let's just say Oregon Saves, right? Oregon Saves is this new thing, and you have to administer it. You have to do this, but you know you have a lot of programs like that that just make 
everything having to do with payroll or HR more complicated. And it's just, it's just, you know, it is more expensive and more complicated now to do business than it's been, you know, in a, I mean, in a really substantial way. Um, and, you know, now almost all of our places have brought in uh, are now providing health care for their employees, right? And that's, I think, an important thing for us to aspire to, but it's also a huge amount of administrative work. Um, so there's just, there's a lot of expenses that I think that people aren't aware of. And I think that there's frustration with, um, you know, the, the bill that they're paying. Um, and, you know, it, it is, it's hard to, uh, it, it's hard to kind of, have people understand, um, you know, how, how, how much more of a burden it is running things than it was, you know, even five years ago. And I think there's that disconnect there that you just hope that people are sensitive to and understand. And, you know, it's, but they've seen it at the grocery store too. Like chicken is not what it was. So they, I think they should understand that. They also, you're right. Most people, Okay, if if uh, chicken now costs me seven five seven dollars to eat at home, I guess I can understand twenty right. at a restaurant. But you have also so much so much more overhead. You've got, all food has gone up, not just oh, yeah. that, but all the supplies, Flour, all the towels, barley. all the yep. the. Uh, I, I just talked to a good friend of mine. His linen costs are insane. Yep. The, the increase in linen costs. Uh, I saw Lisa Schroeder post on Facebook the cost of replacing her yeah, air conditioners yeah. at her restaurant. Yeah, so those are the and things so, that are, uh, you know, I that's mean, tough. And I, um, um, I mean, I guess the thing that it, for me, and, and this is one thing that, um, so we, you know, we open restaurants out in the airport. Um, and, um, and one thing, and so I've been working very, very closely with our partners out there, right? And um, our partners at the airport, they operate close to 4,000 restaurant outlets uh, globally. Um, And so this is really my first foray into uh, working and seeing financials at at that level, right? And what is absolutely stunning to me is that once you get up to the, you know, to to that big, um, so let's just say, you know, the Outback Steakhouse, whatever chain big um the amount of savings that you have uh is way more than i understood you know previously despite all the work i had done you know in restaurants before but you know we're talking with their with their purchasing contracts you know every time they purchase a certain brand of whatever tater tots they're getting back end five dollars you know a case at the corporate level um even in oregon this is one of my favorites they're when they're buying beer, you know, you're not supposed to get discounted beer, but at the corporate level, if they're Oregon locations by in the airport by Budweiser, right. Or blue moon or whatever, um, they're getting corporate, you know, rebates on the back because they're going through volume in Oregon, even though in Oregon, you can't give a rebate for buying a certain keg. So the groups that are that big, you know, I met with their number two globally to talk about these new projects we have. And he was like, yeah, it adds about 10 to 12 percent to our net bottom line. And, wow. That's you know, a lot we, we have below five. We currently have <laughs> zero restaurants doing 12 percent. Right. Right. And um, and that's adding to and that. It. That's not just it. it. So they average. Right. You know, they basically they 
you take away that and we're operating about the same. Um, but you, you know, so we, when people talk about, uh, you know, the advantages that chains have or that large groups have, I don't think people truly understand it. Um, so I guess, you know, the thing I would hope, uh, what I would communicate to people is now more than ever dining local, um, is critical for the local food scene because when you truly compare us, you know, uh, side by side, you know, we, we can't compete financially, uh, with, with the nationals. We just can't because we don't have the volume. Uh, we can't, but there aren't a lot of nationals in Portland. No. Like there are in the suburbs, but those people who are into the the local food scene are into the local food scene. They're not thinking, "Oh, are we going to go to Applebee's? Right. Or are we going to go to St. Jack? Shake Shack? You can go to you know. There's some big right. national okay. operators. Oh, there you, you go. Can go to, so you know, and I don't look. I have a huge amount of respect for Danny Meyer and and Shake Shack and this and that. But you know, it's uh, these are just the choices that I want to impress upon people. You know, spending your money locally is, you know, supports a whole different kind of industry uh, than spending it with national chains. And um, um, and I I don't think financially we're out of the woods. Um, I think that I think fine dining in Portland is is, is continues to be threatened. Um, I think that the food scene will thrive because we pivoted so well to bars and drink forward restaurants and or you know clever versions of restaurants. Um, but sit down dining, um, like we have at Ox or St. Jack or Con or Ringside, um, you know, those are the kinds of restaurants that are, that are the preponderance of, of the closings you have these days are places where, you know, people actually kind of make an effort. And, um, so I'm, I'm worried about that, but I also wonder, you know, I don't think Portland really got its name for fancy sit down dining, you know? Um, no. And so, uh, you know, you think about the restaurants of the past that had kind of the national vibe, you know, with Pock Pock or whatever, you know, that was an unusual kind of dining experience. You know, Khan is, you know, we haven't had a lot of restaurants like that that are truly like a sit down, beautiful, well-financed space, right? Um, a lot of our places were always, well, they were always quirky, Right whether it was uh, Le Pigeon or Beast before that, it was always something kooky happening, you know? And now Khan is mm-hmm. in a certain sense, um, you know, aside from the, you know, the otherworldly talent of Greg, I think, um, is more of a traditional sit-down restaurant, you know? It's like, um, you know, really great servers and, and captains and, you know, all these people circulating around. It feels very glamorous to me compared to what I expect in most Portland restaurants. So, but in general, that's not the Portland food scene that we all, or that the nation fell in love with, right? We were always the quirky weirdo place, the kind of dangerous place to eat, like Andy Fortgang says. Um, and so, you know, I think that we'll pivot and we'll still be relevant, but I think we're going to be relevant in non-traditional ways. Well, and that's been the yeah, brand. That's the brand, traditional, yeah. I think. So, yeah. So, um, so I hope that people will stay well, so, interested and engaged, and um, um, and and my hope is is that diners will go back downtown because that's the part of town that's in in the most desperate need of uh, foot traffic um, and presence uh, because you know we won't the food scene won't come back to its glory until the tourism comes back. Tourism won't come back 
until um, Portland downtown is cleaner and safer. And that's just a fact, you know? I mean, you remember John uh, talking about how he was saying that more than half of everybody that ate at Casey and Alder back in the day was from an out-of-town zip code. You know, the, the downtown Portland food scene was driven by tourism. Um, and, uh, and that's just a fact. I mean, I'm on the board of Travel Portland now, um, and I'm actually going to be the chairman, I think, in a year. Um, and Oh, congratulations. That's cool. Yeah, I, I love that organization. I think they're, they do critical work for Portland. Um, and um, I think that, you know, we, we, need, we need downtown to feel good because think about, and the biggest thing that we've lost as, as a category of restaurant are the hotel restaurants. Right. Like all of Vitaly's closed. Um, You know, you had Bullard closed, uh, more or less. You have like all these great places. Jose Chesa had that place he was opening in that brand new one on uh, uh, Everett closed. The Hyatt. Yeah. And all the uh, all David Machado's restaurants. Bing, bing, bing. So that was a whole, you know, starting in whatever, probably 10. All of a sudden restaurants started investing in like the local chef. um, And and that became a thing. A big part of Portland dining, and it is gone, you know, and um, and I think that that's uh, you know if we want that to come back, we want those the outside dollars to come in. We need tourism, and and Portlanders don't spend enough money. It's not that they don't have enough money. Let's just make one thing clear: Portlanders don't spend enough money in restaurants. It's a very particular Portland thing. Um, you can go to other cities, and you know Austin, you know similar size economy similar size city and and people just you know it's there's more of a show-offy part of going out to eat especially with corporate dining and in portland that's just kind of you know poo-pooed you don't you don't see people dropping i don't think we have a 500 hundred dollar bottle of wine anywhere you know when i'm in austin do you do you i was going to ask do you think that is um because of the way it used to be, the people are just not used to spending. They'll they'll go to San Francisco and drop it or New York. But uh, although I got to tell you, I was in New York recently, and to me, it's like, hey, I think there's some there's some more value yeah. in New York than there might be in Portland yeah. now. I well, I can eat. Better. I feel for I feel for New Yorkers. So, I mean, you know, they we were there recently. I have a lot of close friends there. I mean, Mondays restaurants, Friday restaurants are dead. You know, because there's no there's no commuters. Everybody's coming in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So the Friday happy right, hours okay. so we'll, were just you know in it, were just are gone. And um, now the tourism is booming, so you still have great nighttime stuff. But lunches have been devastated. Um, but I agree. I think I thought I thought New York was less expensive than I remembered it. Um, but yeah, Portlanders just you know we don't drive. You don't ever see a Ferrari driving around. I mean, geez, you're in, even a place like Austin is pretty liberal. You see a shitload of Teslas, though. There's a yeah. lot of Teslas. Yeah, those and are like the, of, there are a lot of nice homes. Well, there are there a lot are of nice homes. Of I'm nice just homes saying, there's money to spend in Portlanders right. culturally. That's... We don't we don't drop a grand on a bottle of wine. And I swear to God, every time I dine somewhere else, I'm looking around at tables because you can't not when you're in my business just to kind of like the radar's popping off everywhere, right? And I'm I'm looking at the wine list. I'm like, man. I mean, I went to this unbelievable place in Austin, and I'm going to remember the name of it in just a second. It's a it's a counter service restaurant, and you go in, but it's more, uh, it, it's like the quality of food that I, you know, is like on par with Bluto's 
but more pastas, but also steak. They have like steak frites. So, it's, but even more, mm. you know, kind of sit down in the menu type, very high quality. But you also have hundred dollar bottle of wine that for a for a counter service, and they're selling them left and right. People are paying you one hundred twenty dollars, and they give them a wine bottle, and they go down to their table, and food comes to them. I was like, for it themselves, yeah, and it's like <laughs> that is awesome. Just like we don't, we wouldn't do that if we put a hundred and twenty dollar bottle of wine on at Grasa or Bluto's. You know, we just would never get touched. And um, so that's interesting. There's just a different spending dynamic uh, here than there is uh, in other places. Um, and I mean, that doesn't bother me. You know, I'm a little bit jealous, but you know, I'd love for you know, us to have the yeah. high rollers come in and drop ten grand on a table. But you know, we just don't have that. Do you think you mentioned downtown and tourism, but also that's got to be a function of people working remotely now. They're not downtown to eat and they're not situated there. And let's face it, there's a there's a negative vibe. It hasn't gone away. People are still talking yeah. about, yeah, look at it down there. Yeah. So um, yeah, the conversation's really gone from kind of homelessness, riots, right? City's inability to keep the city safe and clean. To now, all the articles are about fentanyl. You know, uh, ballot major was it 110 that uh, decriminalized a whole bunch of, uh, 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 you know, drugs for, uh, below a certain level. And uh, so there's a huge one in the New York Times about that and a huge one in the Atlantic about the fentanyl crisis, which is really a state crisis that's focused here in Portland. But, um, yeah, the bad news, the bad news kind of keeps coming out. The city is cleaner city looks better um but you know and i and i don't think we're going to get over the working remote thing just like any town but you know portland has portland has a lot of downtown you know uh, residential things which you know a town like austin or uh, other towns don't have so we have that advantage but yeah i'm convinced you get tourism back up to 100 percent like it was in 19 and it's like the downtown food scene can thrive but you know, I think I think we're a couple of years away from that. Oh, I at best, I think I'd like to think you know we'd all like to think it's going to be sooner than that. But a lot has to be done, and you know, uh, recent history has said the government hasn't figured it out yeah. yet. They're trying. Yeah, I mean, it so, takes eighteen months to to onboard a police officer, right? So um, you know, and you have you had a mass exodus. Uh, which, you know, from a human perspective, I understand, um, you know, you're, you're a police officer and the, the vibe in Portland was not pro, was not supporting, you know, police as a, uh, as a generic, you know, um, profession, right? Um, it was like the bad apples were the ones that everybody was screaming about, but then they screamed at everybody. So, um, so I understand people just being like, I don't want to work in this environment. You know, I can go somewhere else and do it or I can do other things. Um, and, uh, so you, you know, we've had to rehire, uh, the city's had to rehire and, but it takes time. I mean, it takes it, it's 18 months to get a police officer from, you know, from the day one to the street with all the training. So, um, I didn't know that that's a, that's long, a long time. time. Yeah. So, um, so I, it's just going to take time. Uh, and the hope is that we don't lose so much tax revenue that, you know, we, we, we can't afford to pay everybody by the time they're back right. on. Or the but we'll see. I hope Major 110 gets overturned somehow. That's a 
total fiasco. Um, and uh, and then w- and that's being reported in major news outlets oh. as a as a, a total failure. So there, that's that's yeah. Out we're the there. poster child so. as a state. We're the poster child for like failed a failed policy. I, I get it. You know, like I grew up with a libertarian dad who would prefer to you know let people make their own decisions and legalize it. But once you know, once you decriminalize you know fentanyl for a gram or less, there's just there's no consequences, right? So you just sort you have dealers everywhere in downtown Portland. Um, and you know, what are the police going to do? I can give you a hundred dollar citation right now. I mean, well that, and there's vandalism going on that they are not handling and, uh, all sorts of things. I mean, I think downtown feels better, um, than it did. Um, you know, we're opening a huge food cart at fifth and Oak, Southwest fifth and Oak, uh, on the 20th of of August food cart pod. So 20 or actually, Bruce referred to it as something else. What was it? it wasn't Midtown a Beer Garden. Was... That's the official right, name. Right, but there was a there was a name for what it was that was not a pot. It was a, uh, I don't remember. Oh, I should know. You, you should yeah. Know. Yeah, we both yeah. should know because it's my memory failing and it's yeah. your business. But, yeah, it's a great, <laughs> I mean, it, that's going to well, be fantastic. But we built everything to make sure that everybody was safe and secure and felt comfortable on the inside. You know, it's totally fenced in. There'll be, you know, anytime we're open, there's somebody at the two gates to get in and out. Um, you know, there's plants everywhere. There's great carts. There's massive amount of seating. There's a big stage, you know, and, and my hope is that, you know, people will want to check it out because it wasn't that long ago when, God, I remember like the Portland Beer Fest or the Rose Festival just had, you know, there were throngs of people down there. And, uh, well, how about feast yeah. where you get feast, you know, you'd have, no one was thinking about I mean, security. I don't know. I'm not Mike Thielen, but I don't think security was the biggest, it was an issue for sure, but it wasn't what it no, would be now. It wasn't now. Doing it, which, yeah. Like if you don't have something yeah. bolted down, you know, somebody's grabbing it. <laughs> right. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about chef's table. How long has chef's table been in existence? And, um, you know, I remember when we first met, it was a new concept. Yeah. This, you know, and, and I'd explain to people, the S is capitalized in chef's table for a right. reason. It is a stable of chefs. Yeah. Let's, it is not a table. Right. And so it becomes a table, right. but it's a brilliant name, I think. But we first met when, you know, actually when you just opened Foster yeah. Burger, which was kind of outside the concept, yeah. right? That was... Um, which was to take chefs, let them do their thing, what they do well, advise them a little bit to get them up to speed, but provide the back yep. end to the business end yep. of it for them. Yep. And so did I do a yeah. good elevator speech for yeah, that's your it. business? That's it. So, um, but that's, how long ago did you start? Oh, you started with, didn't we? Yeah. Oh, wait. Yeah. Okay. God, that's 15 years now. Yeah. So we, um, that's a history. Yeah, I, uh, it started when I met Andy Ricker in 2006 and he was just about to open up the inside of Pock Pock. You know, he'd just been the shack. And so he's about to open up inside and I met him and, um, he was looking for an investor and I just said I would help him kind of get everything right. If he would open up his books to me to kind of let me work on this idea I had for a company, um, while I was in business school. So, I just came up every month and met with him and all of his management. We went through the numbers and tried to develop systems, you know, that were corporate by nature, right? But try to package them in a way where, 
you know, the, the, the people that were anti-corporate by spirit, <laughs> you know, could, could, could <laughs> buy into it. So, um, and just try to figure out how to, how to do it in a way where we could get the buy-in, you know, kind of a more indie chef and indie team, uh, but still have a certain amount of rigor. Uh, and so, so worked on that for two years and then we opened Ping and Foster Burger and Whiskey Soda Lounge in quick succession. And that was all 09, 10. And then, uh, and then Andy introduced me to Chris Israel and we opened up Gruner together and then literally just chef after chef, just once they find out, they found out that somebody was out there willing to help them open up their restaurant, whatever it was and let them run it exactly how they wanted to run it, you know, on the food and beverage side, then there were a lot of people that came to us and, uh, and asked for help. And, uh, so yeah, so we've been doing that since, uh, you know, 08 officially is when we started with the build out of paying and we opened our first in 09. Um, and now, now we've, now that's kind of expanded into all sorts of different things. You know, we have, uh, we're partners, uh, at an event space and winery at Cooper's Hall. So there's that. Um, we own a brewery called Fracture. Um, and uh, we own a bakery called Dos Hermanos. Uh, Which, by the way, isn't that your kind of your attempt at uh, savings uh, across the board, uh, economy of scale, oh, yeah, that providing was the idea at the beginning. bakery services to a lot of your restaurants. Yeah, that was the idea at the beginning. And then I just, you know, philosophically, we're not, you know, normal restaurant groups. It's just a person whose name is, you know, so-and-so restaurants, right? That's not the concept. The concept right. was always to be about the chef and, and, and really only about the chef. But philosophically, what ended up happening is that unlike most restaurant groups where we have like a beverage manager that mandates purchases or, you know, we don't really negotiate like or mandate group purchasing. Right. So with the bakery, for instance, we Rick, Jen Crelly and I, we were the two partners behind the bakery and the idea being, OK, Rick's going to be able to get exactly what he wants for his bread. But then we realized very quickly, oh, man, to survive, this thing needs to do a lot more than just lardo bread. Right. So, uh, so we brought in uh, Josue and Gabe, um, who are the, the two brothers, Dos Hermanos, um, and they really salvaged that business and turned it into something huge. And now, you know, Lardo, Grasa, they don't even represent 5% of the business that it does. So it's, it's now a really big little bakery. Um, and so, you know, we've just kind of expanded into other things, but it's always been built on, you know, usually on people coming to us saying, they want to do something or um, us having a business like the bakery where these two brothers came to us, you know, they were at Delfina's before Delfina's closed. They came, we were hemorrhaging cash with our first iteration. And I just told them, it's like, man, if you guys can turn this around for, for us, I'll give you half the bakery. <laughs> and so we did January of this year, they vested into half the bakery and then we're putting them into two and a half million dollar bakery uh, at the end of this month on 10th and Stark. So that they can, you know, they're in 1,200 square feet right now. It's unbelievable. So you, you drive by, that bakery is like wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling, packed with people and bread. There's bread and people everywhere. And, you know, their dad is like selling bread out the sliding window. There's bread on the sidewalk. There's bread in the back. It is, it's the most unbelievable uh, scene. You know, it's like a, like a, a, you know, like packing. I don't know, like when English kids used to try to get into a, phone boost and see how many people could get in one it's 
so they're going from that to 7,000 square feet. Um, so, you know, if there's a, that's a little that's bit a big of, change. That's a lot. But that's, yeah. So now we're just, so what, we're just doing more. Different. What was responsible for that, for turning it around? What, there are, there are a few bakeries in Portland. Uh, honestly, so. it's just them being unbelievably hard workers, um, and just grinding, you know? And, and they also knew, you know, they, Delfina's was a great little bakery. So they kind of had the systems in place. They, they knew how to run it. Our previous partner didn't. Um, and uh, they just turned it around. And it really became a family affair. I mean, if you go and see them at the farmer's markets, like their children are selling the bread. And, um, uh, you know, their dad works there. He drives. He sweeps the – I mean, you know, it's just – it's a really – it's like a great American story, I think. Um, and um, so – but in any case, so now, yeah, we've just done all sorts of things. And now, you know, we kind of accidentally got into airport deals um you know we applied for him just saying what the hell let's see if we can secure some contracts um and you know we secured six of them uh and those are huge projects with tons of work and um and they're really interesting projects but very very different than kind of neighborhood restaurants right so um and then we started doing some licensing deals like you know we have a, a lardo in vegas we have a sacramento we have a sacramento loyal legion um so we're working you know we're doing stuff like that too, but it really just has to do with what my partners are interested in doing. And I'm pretty easy to talk into doing a project. So if I have a partner that's excited about something, then, you know, we'll figure out a way to do it. Um, and so it's kind of led to, you know, chef stables. It's definitely not like just a thing that we do, right? There's just, it's more passion driven and partner driven. Um, if Rick tells me why, you know, like Bluto's, right? We already have, you know, Rick has like eight restaurants and he says he wants to do Bluto's. And I was like, man, do you really, you re sure you want another restaurant? I felt like Sheila was going to kill me, his wife. Um, and he's like, oh yeah, I have this great idea. I used to always send him pictures from Greece. Um, my sister married a Greek person. So, you know, I'd go there and visit their family and, and he eventually, you know, he was so, so fired up to do it. So we did Bluto's and, and it's been awesome, you know, so, but it's, you know, I wouldn't have, it's not like I go around looking for new boondoggles to get involved with, but people come to me and tell me, you know, tell me a story about how excited they are to do something. And if I really like them, I mean, this is, this is like the investment filter. Do I really like the person that's talking to me and do I believe in them? And if I do, we do it, you know, um, and then I'll sit down and make sure that the numbers work, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's like, I don't, you know, I And so, not to be specific, how many times has that been your filter where you said, this is what I'm going to, my criteria for doing it. And then, just like a marriage, right. it doesn't necessarily work yeah. out, right? People change. How many of those have not worked out where you're either maybe still in and you wish you weren't, but or that just ended and you were happy they ended? So pretty, um, there's probably three... Um, that were bad, you know, where I just uh, misjudged uh, the partnership that I was getting into. And, um, you know, aside from one, uh, we, we managed the, the breakup pretty well. Um, so, but yeah, it happens, you know. Uh, but usually I haven't really made gigantic failures with like chef partners where I've just totally misjudged their character. Um, I've made bad decisions with uh, investors. Um, but on the chef partner side, um, 
you know, I, I'm okay with underperforming financially if I really like the person that I'm working with. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, yeah, that I just would much rather hang out with people that I like. Uh, you know, if, if all of Rick's restaurants were break even, I'd still be happy that I was hanging out with Rick because he's just, you know, he's an awesome guy and I, I love spending time with him. Um, so, but I don't, you know, I don't, uh, it's not like everything we do, I have some sort of, this needs to make 20% net, uh, or, you know, I'm out. Um, that's just not the filter. No, but the, the key is that you have an idea how to get there. Yeah. And so and I'm always intrigued uh, with you know, the, yeah, the challenge, you know, but you know, now I am thinking more, it's like, God, all right, we've done so many things. Like, what, do, what do we do next? What do I want to do? Um, and so, you know, I'm trying to slow down. Uh, I was going to ask that. That was my next question. Your, your, your balance, your life balance, your quality of life. You have a, a you know, beautiful family and I'm sure you want to spend a little more time yeah. with them than you already do. Or so, I mean, that's kind of the goal I would imagine. Yeah. So are you, will you hit a limit where you personally are only able to process so much or, you know, you can't hire people to be Kurt. Yeah. Right? You well, have to. I've really, you know, since day one, I have tried tried to make sure that eventually, like, not, nobody depended on me day to day to do anything. Um, and I think we're very close to that now. You know, mostly what I do is crisis management, which people, you know, it helps to have me involved with crises just because I've dealt with a lot of them. It's not like I'm gifted with it. I just have a lot of experience, you know? Um, so I kind of know the pitfalls and, um, you know, it's like being a bouncer at a, at a bar. You've just seen enough fights that you just, you're, you're calmer in that moment. Um, and so with that stuff, I help, I think with fundraising and stuff like that, I, that's probably the most important stuff I do. Um, but you know, my, my team pretty much manages the day to day. Um, uh, and so I don't have to be involved as much as, you know, I think somebody like, like I was talking to Kim Malik about how I'm, I'm thinking about stepping away and only working part time for like six to seven months sometime in the future. And she's like, how are you going to do that? Who's going to run your company? And I just felt like, Oh, well, I mean, my company is just going to kind of run the company, you know? I don't think I need to be, we'll just slow down on projects so that um, I'm not bringing new stuff in or having to fundraise again or, you know, and so I, so I think we can get there. And having less drama, less, yeah, less, less drama, fewer fires to yeah. put out too. Fewer fires. So, and I think, I think we can get there. Um, so that, that's kind of the hope for this year. I know I've asked you this question before, but I don't want to force people to look for one of eight podcasts you've joined us on so what do you, can you offer um uh maybe a how you best handle high stress situations to remain as calm as you can possibly be i'm not there to see how calm you are right but um you have a lot of high stress situations restaurants are not are are in their very nature uh there's a lot of a lot of fires to put out yeah i mean uh, yeah it's um you know, I already used this analogy once, but I, I really do feel like when I was in France, we had this um, um, this one uh, bouncer uh, named Musa, and uh, he had a big influence on me because I just remember how calm he was, kind of in the face of 
you know, our bar was, our bar brewery restaurant was right across the street from where like Champions League matches were being played. And, and those were just crazy, you know, and there would be hooligans coming by. And, and I just remembered how he was just, he always kept his cool. Um, and when that, like a fight did break out and he had to go out and like engage with people, that's when he would just tell me to hold the door shut and he just like walk outside <laughs> and I would just hold the door shut as, you know, I felt kind of like, like really you just, I just, I hide inside and hold, you keep them out and you go outside, <laughs> but he'd go outside and, you know, he had grown up in, in a civil war in West Africa and, and that guy was hard as, was a hard man. And he'd go outside and about 30 seconds later, he'd come back in and all the kids were laying on the ground, knocked out. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Well, you can't do that no, here. But I, you know, I think that the key is that, first of all, the key is, you know, don't spastically respond, right? It's like, take your time. That's the hardest thing to do when a crisis is happening is everybody wants to respond immediately. And you can imagine like a mini crisis is a one star horrible review, you know, on Yelp. Um, and, um, and so, you know, at the beginning, I think the way I managed those and how you and I met is I was kind of, I would make fun of them <laughs> and frame them and post them on the wall. Um, and then, and then over time you just realize, just take your time, right? It's like a horrible restaurant review. You know, at the beginning I would be really upset. Um, and I, I, and I thought over the years, Portland has had their fair share of absolutely horrendous uh, restaurant reviewers. And so I would let that get to me. But, you know, after time, after 15 years, you just, you just have to relax. And, um, but, you know, I've also had the fortune, misfortune of going through a lot of things, going through lawsuits, you know, with Lardo. Um, and that was my, my second, you know, I, I went through a very long legal thing when I was leaving France. And so you just kind of, you get that experience and you realize <clears throat> that there's always time to react and you just have to stay calm in that moment. Um, because then you don't make rash decisions, you know, in a, the worst thing to do in a, in a panicky situation is make rash decisions. You know, my partners, you know, with making rash decisions, they do that all the time, right? They, there's something bad, uh, you know, employee says something bad or whatever, and they freak out. And so, you know, you want to, you need to be both, um, uh, you need to react. You can't overreact. I guess that's the best way of saying it. So, um, and you just have to be very, very disciplined about, uh, how you engage with people. Um, and so, and I think I've, I've learned that over the years, but I don't think I would have learned it if I hadn't have gone through so many different potential crises. Opportunities. You swung the bat a few times. Yeah. Yeah. I also have found that if you, if you can have the discipline and you're right, it's that it's not easy to do, but if you can have the discipline to not react right away. And no matter what amount of time it is, six hours, 24 hours, four days, the solutions are more plentiful when yeah. you give it some time. Uh, you see different, you see things different ways and go, Oh, well, wait, that would work. You didn't, wouldn't have seen that in the first hour. Yeah. You wouldn't, and you didn't have the chance to talk about it with others as well yeah. to go through it. So I remember um, when people, you know, if we had, um, I just remember at one point, I remember somebody, posting something uh, really mean about me online. Um, and I just, and I just, uh, you know, I, I responded just saying, Hey, give me a call. And I, you know, I put my cell number in the, in the link 
just kind of so everybody could see it, you know, and the point just being, hey, let's just let's ratchet this down a little bit. And, and I think when you engage with people calmly, you know, in those moments, it can kind of diffuse a lot. Um, and um, yeah, so but the, the biggest thing is just to the biggest advantage I have over the years is just having done a lot of stuff. And, you know, I don't know. I just I remember I don't if you remember Tom Seaver when he was trying to make a comeback. That, that was he was my idol. What are you talking yeah. about? So I remember when he came back. I So I just, re- just remember reading about, you know, he came in, he's like 40. Um, he was trying to make a comeback, I think with the Mets. And he, um, and they were, uh, this pitching coach was there and uh, kind of watching him. And he just didn't have it anymore, right? But he just, he knew, he, he had so much experience, right? And this is what, I remember the Sports Illustrated article about it. I was talking about how they wanted all the pitchers to watch what pitches he threw, where he threw them. Because and he talk just, to he him. Just, yeah, because he had so much experience. You know, he wasn't at that point that good. Right? I he think wasn't, you're he talking didn't... about the Red Sox when he was oh. when he ended up on the Red Sox. Oh, really? His career. Yeah, and maybe. So he, but he knew he just he knew he had that wealth of knowledge from experience. You know, and, and he was um, one of the brightest baseball players ever, like one yeah, of the so smartest. I, so I don't know. There's there's my attempt at bringing a Mets analogy, but I. Um, but I think, you know, I think that is, it's like if, when you have a thousand different at bats or, you know, a thousand different innings pitched, it's like, you just learn a lot, just learn right. about people. And, and, and you learn you know, that any one pitch and any one inning is, isn't the end of the world. It's, yeah. and, and, you know, not so much in your business, but I've always made this analogy. I mean, baseball is a game, is a sport where people fail two out of three times, no matter to be, and they're the best players when they right. fail two out of three times. Yeah. So, um, but you can't yeah, fail think, two out of three times. No, two out of three is bad. I mean, I think <laughs> I, I like to think that we're, we're we're bad about eight hundred if you look across everything. So, and there's a lot of moving parts, so you can't expect to bat a thousand. Uh, yeah, all, it's impossible. Yeah. and so. I think people worry so much, you know. And you know all all the guys right now that are up and coming in Portland, you know they they'll they'll have their face plant, and I think they worry so much about that, you know, and so I just you know my advice is just it's just going to happen. Nobody bats and, a, bats a thousand. And when know? you so started, that, when you st- I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say when you started, there were quote unquote professional reviewers to react to. Now you've got. Amateur reviewers, yeah. <laughs> all that's who's reviewing what you're doing and who are they're commenting on the wallpaper as right. opposed to the food. So it's, it's, it's a very different scene. That's actually a good podcast <laughs> all in of itself is that before you understood the, um, the calendar of, uh, of kind of the timeline in which you could get the word out, right? We all understood that. And it's like you had to be pretty good, you know, when you open then you got better. And then if you did really, really well and you're firing on all cylinders in month two or three, you'd start seeing the reviewers. And if you got that, a review that was glowing, you just were busy, you know, and that is not how it is anymore. Um, like not at all. And uh, even like think of all the restaurant of the year stuff. It's just, it's just kind of, it's all kind of, everybody's doing their own thing. It's, it's just kind of, uh, you know, there's no like massively impactful award any longer. 
that just and and that's that's changed a lot. So now everybody has to think, you know, differently about how they market themselves, how they think about themselves. And traditional press, traditional food press, is just not what it was. Um, so you have to, you know, I know, I know, Zeusman. I always love how much he hates influencers, um, but it's like you know, <laughs> influencers are important. You know, it's like young people, they love going out and eating. They have a huge audience. And they're no different than, you know, than food writers in the past. It's just that now there's 20 influencers for every one big food writer. And, right. um, and But they were more in-depth back then. They really yeah. talked about the, oh, the yeah. sauce. And the, now it's just, look at this. Is, doesn't this look good? And it's delicious. Yeah. That's, about, that's what you get. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you have so, to do both, you know. It's like I think the best people in town make it look beautiful and it's delicious, you know. So you just have to. You have to you have to be able to play both games, you know. And um, but if you do, uh, you know, then you can you can get to where we used to be in the past with restaurants that I think were just good but didn't have the flash, you know. Um, so yeah, so that's that's a big way that things are evolving. I would like I would love to have you back since you just mentioned that's a podcast unto itself. Oh, I'd God. love to have you back to talk about to talk about that, and I, I'm, oh, yeah. I've overstayed my welcome because oh. I, we talked about last time going over, and I yeah. didn't want to. I, I knew so, we needed to have more than an hour. It's just that's how it always well, works. We'll talk. So, it, it doesn't yeah, always work. Happy. Here, it's when we have the best guests, we go over an hour. So when the I'd conversation's interesting, like yeah, the no, I'd changes love changes in our industry, you know, and that that's well, that's kind of what I wanted to do today, but I, I attacked it in a certain way. But let's do that. And but before yeah. you go today. Yeah. Um, you know, I always ask this. What are you enjoying? You go out to eat. You've got to go out to eat to non-chef's table restaurants as well as chef's table restaurants to yeah. be able to see what's going on out there. What are you excited about now in Portland? Where where should people go? Uh, well, yeah, shameless plug. I mean, I did go to Cash Cash last night, and I just was so blown away. He had like three new dishes, the sardine toast, um, uh, the lobster roll. I mean – John is, he's just a superstar talent and he's going to move back to France eventually. So he's just not long. Can you help me get him on the podcast before he goes? Yeah. Yeah. He'd love to. He's such a delightful guy. Um, I went to, uh, uh, Peter Cho's new restaurant. I think it's Mm -hmm. Jeju or Jeju or Jeju. I don't, I've only read it, so I haven't heard it. So, and I thought that was just delightful. Um, now it helped that Peter came over and talked to us for like 10 minutes and he is probably, one of the most lovely people uh, I've met. And just so, you know, I, I'm, so I'm just admitting that his presence <laughs> may have influenced how I thought about it. Cause I just, it was such a neat time hanging out with him. Um, but I thought the food was exceptional. So I really liked that. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's the last new place I've eaten at recently. Um, I just don't get out as much as I would like to. Um, because it's just, you know, it's busy and I got a seven year old and blah, 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 blah. So, um, she's seven now. Yeah. She's seven, but Time I think Peter, yeah, I love what he's doing. Um, and you know, I've been to con twice. Um, and I think it, as a dining experience, it's just, it's just awesome. Um, and, um, so, but yeah, I haven't really been to that many new places, uh, but I'd love to, and I'd love to get out more. But, you know, I think that's going to be once Cora gets back into school, you know, the the school year will open it up for us. Well, time was we used to go out and enjoy a bite together. And we we did that in a long time. (laughs) So let's do that sometime. Let's pick a place that neither of us have been 
that we need to add, we need to put on the list and get together. I really appreciate it, Kurt. Um, yeah. I, I, I need to get into Cash Cash. I had a reservation once and, you know, being in Manzanita and oh, dealing yeah. you with- You got to be in town in. to do it. I'm but never, uh, I'm not in town anymore. I come in for that to, to, okay. eat. that's what I do. It's like we have people always say to me, when you're in town, let me know. No, I'm not just hanging around saying, Hey, let's get together. I have, to, I come in because I make arrangements to come in now. Used to be I had the podcast in the studio. Yeah. And every Monday I was there. Yeah. So I would arrange stuff on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. I don't have that anymore. So, um, all right, great. I appreciate it, and thanks right. so much. And um, thank thanks, you. Chris. Say hello to everybody. I will. Okay. See you, buddy. Bye-bye. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX, or on Facebook at Right at the Fork, or online at rightatthefork.com. dot